0: At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers.
1: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Later in the program, key takeaways from day two of the Surface Navy Association's annual conference and trade show. But first joining us is Justin Sherman, who is affiliated with the Atlantic Council Cyber Statecraft program. He is also a Wired Magazine contributor and also one of our regular and thoughtful cyber guests. Justin, uh, Happy New Year, and thanks so very much for joining us. Happy New Year, great to be here as usual. Uh, And indeed, uh, indeed a pleasure. Uh, And a word from our sponsors before we get started. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And during this week and into the coming weeks, we are going to continue our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium, where our coverage is sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and Raytheon Technologies. Tune in to our Cavus Ships podcast hosted by uh, Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello for a daily deep dive into the show with gavel-to-gavel coverage. Don't miss that. Justin, uh, thanks very much again for uh, joining us. Obviously, uh, it's a new year. Uh, we've uh, heard uh, from uh, some of our other regular guests on what uh, they think the big issues of twenty twenty one were, but also the big issues of twenty twenty two and 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 where we should be, what we should be focused on this year. From from your perspective, right? And we've heard from Jim Lewis and Mike Rogers and uh, Monty Montgomery. Uh, I wanted to get your sense, right? What are do you think some of the big issues are going to be? And, and what are the pucks that we have to be uh, skating, uh, right? You don't want to skate to the puck. You want to skate a, 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 to where the puck's going to be. What are going to be some of those issues that we need to be paying closest attention to?
2: There's a lot of momentum carrying over from last year already on a bunch of domestic shore up our defenses, supply chain uh, type stuff from the administration. You have... Uh, you know, the executive order on foreign adversaries using data to target the US and to undermine national security. Um, you know you have agencies in the process of carrying that out. Uh, NIST has been doing a bunch on building out cybersecurity frameworks for companies. Uh, CISA has been very active, and this will continue into this year and building out public private partnerships. Um, for example, in addition to their uh, outreach to small and medium businesses. They recently started up work on internet architecture security. So, looking at ways to better protect, uh, which we've of course talked about before, the tubes and the critical physical infrastructure that underlies the modern internet. And so, there's really a lot of a lot of motion uh, happening on all of those fronts. In general, though, I think. Uh, some of the big issue areas for this year will include ransomware. That is uh, a rapidly growing cybersecurity problem for the United States. We've seen uh, everyone from large multinationals to local hospitals, 911 call centers, schools hit with these attacks where their data is encrypted and they have to pay a ransom. They're extorted essentially in Bitcoin to get that data back. And so um, you know, that of course, is a pressing issue because it's happening more frequently. It's primarily coming from groups in Russia. And so Biden has uh, and the administration have a challenge there in trying to get Putin to curtail that a little bit. Um, but that also is a big issue because it impacts day-to-day operations for lots of, of businesses and organizations. So ransomware is one. Uh, certainly another I think we might see some progress on is consumer device security. There's been a lot of talk of IoT, software bill of materials, so that might continue. Um, and then obviously internationally, the US has been doing a lot of outreach on internet policy, on cyber threats, um, particularly focused on China and Russia. And so keeping our eye on that ball and making sure we're being proactive there is, is going to be really big uh, in this coming year too.
1: Uh, how do you uh, rate uh, the administration's first year in office Uh, on cyber? And what do you think their priorities have to be in 22?
2: On the whole, I think the administration's done a great job with cyber. Um, You know, again, I I feel like I say this (laughs) all the time sometimes, but uh, it is still worth remembering, right, that they entered into uh, a government where the cybersecurity coordinator position at the White House was eliminated um, you know, the CISA director, Chris Krebs, had just been fired for trying to do his job and protect the election. So, um, you know, even that considered the Biden administration has done a great job overhauling some of that, putting great people, you know, Chris Inglis, Ann Newberger, Jenny Sterling, many others in place um, to do this work. So overall, very well done. I think one of the um, main Uh, shortfalls, though, in the overall strategic approach the Biden administration has been taking is focusing very heavily on China uh, when we're talking about tech and when we're talking about cyber. And there's obviously plenty of good reason to do that. Um, You know, the Chinese government has the most sophisticated internet censorship uh, system in the world. It, you know, is constantly hacking Uh, U.S. companies, including in the defense space and stealing intellectual property. Um, So there's lots of reason, right, to pay attention to that. But I think as recent developments uh, with Russia and Ukraine have shown, you can't take your eye off the ball in other places either. And Russia and Iran and there are some other actors who far more than China might not be causing as much long term economic damage, but they're far more willing to cause pain and launch destructive cyber operations um, than the Chinese are. I, I think everybody knows who you're talking about, but uh, like
1: whom, right? It could be one of the countries that's in the headlines uh, as we speak, right?
2: Yeah, Russia's the primary country I'm thinking of. Um, you know, there's a lot of reason to be concerned about Russian cyber operations, uh, especially because you know of really two things: one, which is relates to the ransomware issue. The Russians rely very heavily on an entire spectrum of proxies and actors to run operations for them. Sometimes these are criminal groups that the Russian government recruits to do stuff. Sometimes these are groups that the Kremlin genuinely is not funding or anything, but they know they're a bunch of uh, you know pro-Kremlin patriotic hackers and they just point basically by making a media comment and then they start hacking. Um, so that's sort of the first reason is you have this real proxy problem. The second reason though, is the Russians are far more willing, I think, than the Chinese government to uh, conduct destructive cyber operations, to actually damage equipment to, as we saw in Ukraine twice, to literally turn off lights to you know plunge million, uh, hundreds of thousands of people into darkness by hacking a power grid. Um, you know Russian military intelligence routinely sends actually like intelligence operatives overseas. To then station themselves in other countries, like in Europe, and then hack from there. So there's all kinds of activity um, there too, where again there's lots of reason to focus on China, but you know you got to be able to walk and, and chew gum at the same time. But let me pull on that because you and I have talked about
1: cyber deterrence. Uh, in the past. And right now, deterrence is a very, very important question with the Russians. Um, You know, as as usual, Vladimir Putin has contrived a situation. Uh, The international community always tells him, uh, we're going to get tough with you. We get sort of tough, but not tough enough, obviously, to deter him. Uh, It doesn't matter whether the president has met with Putin and has an agreement on what red lines are. Putin is probably going to transgress those red lines. Just like in 2014, just as the NATO summit was wrapping up in the wake of Ukraine, and leaders were saying NATO territory is uh, will never be violated, Putin within sort of that weekend uh, managed to in in rather prominent ways violate the territorial integrity um, or sovereignty of a number of NATO countries, including going into Estonia and nabbing an Estonian intelligence officer uh, and taking him to Moscow. Right? What does? How do we need to be thinking about cyber? Deterrence uh, at a time when it looks like uh, things that we perceive are red lines may not be as red as
2: uh, to, to our adversaries, whether they're Russia, China, North Korea, or Iran. Yeah, that's a really important question, um, and obviously one plenty of folks in in the government uh, have long grappled with. I think the first step is breaking out different categories of cyber activity. If you are, for example, non destructively hacking into a system just to steal data and you're an intelligence service, well, then that's espionage. And, you know, every state spies and you're not going to deter any country from (laughs) conducting, you're not going to get a country to stop spying on others to collect intelligence. And so in that case, the conversation is not cyber deterrence. It's about, you know, just dissuading them from doing certain kinds of actions or shaping the espionage, right? You can't really getting anyone to stop doing that. Then there's the other category of behaviors, whether that's military or, like I mentioned, a criminal proxy doing something for, for North Korea or for, or for Russia. And that's where deterrence gets really tricky. Um, I think we've seen a willingness in the U.S. across the past three administrations to strongly condemn cyber actions, whether that's Estonia in 2008 with Russia or Chinese IP theft um, or you know the uh, hack against Sony Pictures by North Koreans, we haven't really seen a willingness to impose costs in some case. Uh, and so you know, when we talk about things like the Russia-Ukraine situation right now, where there's, of course, a, a classical deterrence question, you also get into this space where, sure, maybe issuing some indictments and strongly condemning that foreign adversaries uh, hacking does something. But if you're not actually imposing and enforcing red lines, making it super clear behind the scenes, if you touch this target or hack us in this way, there will be XYZ consequence. I don't think you're really going to get anywhere with, with some of these foreign governments. And, and what do you think some of
1: those actions need to be, right? I mean, this is where we um, get into really, um, I, I don't know how productive those conversations are, right? I mean, I, I, everybody understands that, um, you know, we're conducting intelligence and the difference, differentiation, but what is a legitimate intelligence target and what is not? But what do the kind of things that have to be, you know, what, what are, what's a, what's a better way of doing this, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we want it to be painful enough to get them to stop, but it's, it's not, you know, what what does that, you know, at a time of integrated deterrence, I don't even know what that means because I think deterrence is always integrated uh, if it's, if it's going to be effective. But what does, from your standpoint, some of the fundamental elements of this sort of integrated deterrent posture need to be in cyberspace? And are we turning any of these vectors in our advantage as far as you can tell?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think there are plenty of of non-state actors and foreign governments out there who generally understand that the U.S. has very sophisticated cyber capabilities, and and you know know or have decided not to go do something really stupid that would provoke a strong response. Um, of course, most of the deterrence question centers on you know a couple of countries because those couple of countries—China, Russia, North Korea, Iran. Uh, Some others are really willing to uh, take very assertive action, uh, even if there are consequences from the U.S. So the first thing is I think we can't pigeonhole uh, deterrence in cyberspace specifically into cyberspace, Um, right? I mean, as every listener of this podcast knows, cyber is so well integrated now into military operations, intelligence operations, statecraft, that when we're talking about imposing costs on, say, Russia and cyberspace, instead of saying, "Well, what are we going to do?" We don't really know what the costs could be. Yeah, we do. We look at all the things the Kremlin traditionally cares about: oil, the border, sanctions on officials, right? So I think that's the first thing: is remembering, okay, we can look at the tech issue, but we got to put it in the broader political context. Of same thing with China, we can't just focus on the fact that. A company is hacking a U.S. company and then handing it over to the MSS. We have to look at the overall political objective, which is, of course, they relo- the Chinese government relies on IP theft for, uh, you know, economic growth and keeping up its defense and all all sorts of things. So, um, I think just that broader broader view is important. And at some point we're going to have to draw specific lines. I think being Im- uh, ambiguous in some of these talks with foreign governments can be useful sometimes, but at a certain point, if you're super vague and say, oh, well, don't hack this or we'll do something back to you, you know, especially for a country like Russia that understands force in negotiation, that's not really gonna get you too far.
1: Obviously voting rights, uh, three, two, one. Obviously, voting rights is something uh, that is uh, in the headlines. The president uh, and the Democratic Party are, are pressing it. Um, we we did have interference from the Russians in the elections in 2016, uh, and and you know not as serious. Although I think there is ample evidence that still Russia and China continue to try to shape um, the politics in the United States, especially through its information and disinformation, rather sophisticated information and disinformation uh, operations. Um, how secure is our election system from foreign interference and what more has to be done, right? I mean, you noted Chris Krebs uh, did a heroic job and the folks at uh, DHS, at CISA, uh, across the enterprise, right? I mean, Cyber Command uh, and General uh, Nakasone, uh, right? Uh, Also uh, at the National Security Agency, or I should say General Nakasone is is both uh, NSA director as well as Cyber Commander. Um, What does that, where are we? Are these fundamental
2: elements of the democratic franchise as secure as they need to be at this point? We've talked about this before, and I think it's it's worth reiterating. Those the, all those folks and many others, right, did a fantastic job uh, securing the 2020 election relative to 2016. Um, if you read the public reports from the FBI, from uh, the DNI, and others about 2020 you see that there was some activity on social media with, with disinformation and, and misinformation. There was some poking around uh, into you know, election systems and there's debate about whether that was purely for intelligence gathering or whether Russia or someone else got in there and then decided they weren't gonna do anything. But um, on the whole, I think it was very secure and, and this gets to the point, which is that if we look at what happened domestically in 2020, Uh, You know, and then into about just over a year ago now, we were not secure as a country. I mean, there were and still are millions and millions of Americans who do not believe that the fair, democratic, legitimate results of a legitimate election were in fact fair and democratic and legitimate, Um, right? We saw, you know, armed insurrectionists attempting a violent coup at the Capitol. I mean, so to me, when we talk about this question, That's really what it comes down to. The cyber folks have done a great job improving the security of our election systems. But at the end of the day, if there are so many people in the U.S. public who don't believe that the election is secure, maybe that's what matters more at the end of the day, because if we see continued violence and other things as a result of that, that's doing far more damage than, you know, some posts that some Russians are putting up on Facebook. Uh, Unfortunately, that's an element of it that
1: is uh, hard to control right by any agencies. If uh, prominent American political leaders are playing into uh, these falsehoods or giving oxygen to them or lift to them. Uh, obviously, there are there are a lot of people depending on the sources of information they pay attention to uh, will be um, unfortunately shaped by it. Uh, let me let me ask you one uh, one last question uh, before before we go. I want to bring it around and ask you about ransomware, right? I mean, obviously that was one of the big stories in twenty twenty one, where Americans were in line for gas, right? Something we had not seen in decades. Uh, concerns about food supplies uh, at a at a, uh, you know, and, and this sense that almost anything else can be attacked. You talked about the power grid and how effectively the Russians have turned off the lights in, in Ukraine. Um, are we making as much progress on the ransomware front? Uh, and, uh, you know, you would have thought after a year like that, that the Congress would have gone for one of the Cyber Solarium Commission's number one recommendations, which is reporting requirements, right? That you have 24 hours to report a breach to uh, and NSA, and yet that language hasn't, hasn't passed. Are we making as much progress? What has happened this year to make progress on ransomware? And isn't it imperative to pass legislation that requires businesses to immediately notify the government of a breach? Otherwise, they are not going to get the help they need in the
2: timeframes they need to mitigate damage. It's a huge problem. There was a big fight over getting the reporting requirements into uh, law, and that obviously did not happen, which is which is unfortunate. There's a lot the government can do and is doing. Right, CISA in reaching out to the private sector, trying to help small and medium sized businesses uh, boost their defenses. The White House obviously is talking to Russia, saying Putin, you got to do something about these these couple cyber criminal groups. At the end of the day, though, which goes to your point. If the government doesn't have the authority to make companies do something better in some form, I don't think we're going to get very far. Um, even with the colonial pipeline hack, which was devastating, the TSA cannot go in and tell the pipeline, here's ABCD, how you need to secure. They can audit, they can inspect, but they don't really have that direct you know, regulatory power. So I think a lot of this is up to Congress, um, but you know, hopefully we can get some movement in the
1: next year. Justin, as always, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure uh, and already looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. And joining us now is our producer, Chris Cervello, a retired United States Navy Commander and public affairs uh, officer, who is the co-host of the Cavus Ships podcast, uh, along with our contributing editor, Christopher P. Cavus, who sadly is not joining us, but you guys have been uh, broadcasting daily, as everybody on the program knows. Uh, Our coverage at the Surface Navy Association is sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and Raytheon Technologies. Uh, Chris, uh, concluding day two, um, certainly. Uh, action-packed. Uh, we had Brian Clark on uh, yesterday uh, to talk uh, a little bit about the messaging we heard from the CNO, as well as uh, Vice Admiral Kitchener uh, and uh, and other leaders, the uh, uh, Admiral uh, Paul Schleiss, uh, the Director of Surface Warfare, uh, as well as uh, Brigadier General Odom, uh, who is the N95. Talk to us a little bit about what we heard today uh, and, and what are what are the messages, the vibe, and the and the chi you were getting from uh, the sh- show floor in person? Much smaller than it normally is, but still remarkably well attended.
3: Well, let us start with the second part of your question, and then then I'll uh, ending talking about that. I'll I'll cover down on kind of the specific messages. So you know we're taping this the as you said the end of day two. Um, I, I'm in my hotel room. You're now back at your place because we're trying to stay distant. Um, I'm exhausted, Vago. I'm exhausted because, like, I am having this internal conflict, not to share too much information with the audience. I heard great stuff from Navy leadership. I heard... Uh, as Brian talked about, you, you hear Kitchener uh, yesterday, Admiral Kitchener with a plan. You hear the CNO talking tough. You hear the right things from the resource sponsor in N-96 and uh, uh, N-95. Um, today, we heard great things from um, two very smart and passionate members of Congress. We heard the new Fleet Forces Command, Admiral Cottle, say all the right things. That's that's the angel side of my shoulder. The devil side of my shoulder is telling me, you've heard all this before, dude. You, you've been to like ten of these. You've heard all this before, and the needle hasn't moved very much. So what makes you think that it's going to move this time? And so I I, I say that, um, trying to be a, a, a little I, I guess or or you know a little tongue in cheek. But that's the vibe that I'm hearing from my friends, my mentors. People that have been around a while is that hey, this group of leaders, you know, they're certainly saying the right things, but we've heard all this before. And so the question that you're left with is, what makes us think it's going to be different, or what are they doing this time that will make it different, that will move the needle um, on the manning, the training, the equipping, the technology side? Uh, I, I don't know that I don't know that I have the answer for for you or the audience, Vaga.
1: Well, I mean, right, um, there are two ways of looking at this, right? I mean, you mentioned uh, devil and angel. On the one hand, uh, repetition is key, right? You repeat the need for change. Eventually people start talking about the need for change. We're at the place uh, where where folks are trying to change and and certainly building uh, on progress that has been made, right? I mean, sometimes you don't recognize that you may be moving, uh, right? You're putting the rudder over, but it takes a, a little while for the head to move sometimes. We, we may be at that point where we're actually starting to change and move uh, and address this because it's been a very very big challenge right i mean we haven't been focused on some of these issues for a long time um l- let me let me get to some of the more uh specific uh, messaging let me let me just ask you you and i were actually uh talking a little bit and have been talking about this right i mean my yeah. sense is, uh, and has been uh, that that we have a couple of years to get this right before uh, we lose the ability to deter. You know, my window was about five years. That was a couple of years ago. What, where do you think that window is, right? Before we get to specific messages today, yeah. uh, you, you've you heard some things uh, over the course of the last couple of days that, that make you a little more uh, optimistic. Um, where, how, how big is our window to get deterrence right from your standpoint?
3: I truly think... Um, that um, we have, you know, a five-year window, um, you, you know, and so by your math, you'd say three years because your five-year window started two years ago. So I, let, let's split the difference and say between three to five years, that if, if the things that we have been talking about, I, I think for the last decade, but the things that we've been talking about and really focusing on for the last couple of years, if we don't get the, 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 the ship's, you know, head moving in the right direction to steal your analogy, I think we're gonna miss our window. Now, does that mean that the world is gonna end and that that we're not gonna be a, um, a a superpower and that we're not gonna be able to influence? No, I, I don't think that's what it means, but I think that the longer we wait, the harder, the more expensive, and the longer. It's going to take for us to do the things that we need to do and that, that the leadership is articulating at this conference and, um, you know, on the Hill and in trade press. So we've, we really have to get that head moving in the right direction.
1: Um, What were uh, some uh, more uh, specific and interesting things, you know, you mentioned uh, the lawmakers um, start right day two is always starts with uh, key lawmakers. Uh, This time it was uh, Mike uh, Gallagher, uh, the uh, congressman from uh, Wisconsin, uh, Republican. Ph.D., former Marine uh, and a friend of the show, and uh, Representative Elaine Luria, Naval Academy graduate, former surface warfare officer, both with really, really thoughtful uh, messaging. Give the audience a little bit of a recap of what we heard from from those two important lawmakers and and some real on the mark critiques that they had.
3: So Mike Gallagher and Elaine Luria are are national treasures as far as I'm concerned, Uh, and and they reinforce that today. And why do I say that? Um, they articulated and, and, you know, to be fair, I mean, they're politicians. They give a lot of speeches. They're, they're, they've gotten very good at being able to communicate. But they stood up in front of an audience um, and they articulated um, the, the need for sea power, the things that are working, the things that are that are uh, not working and where the Navy needs to take more risk um, better than anyone in uniform I heard over two days. Um, so I would tell the audience that if you didn't get a chance to listen to them speak, go on the SNA website and look for their hour long remarks between remarks and question and answers, uh, because it was very good. Um, and so I, I I'm left with the, the question, like, is it the Hill that's going to bail us out right for years, folks in uniform thought that, Hey, I mean, we had a lot of support on the Hill and as long as they gave us the money on time, we'd be fine. We really didn't need much else from them other than support and money, you know, and that when they asked us to, to do reports, or they asked us to, to come back up and testify that that really took away bandwidth and took away time. I think maybe, you know, maybe that's changed. Maybe we're going to find creativity and um, partners like we haven't found before uh on the hill or that we haven't found in a long time i don't want to show my age because i know that throughout history there have been real creative real um energetic folks on both in both houses that have helped the navy but maybe that's where we need to go back to and and, and i certainly walked away from their remarks this morning um energized from what i heard from their their thinking and and even more than their thinking but how the, how simply and crisply they articulate Um, the needs for the Navy right now.
1: Um, I'm going to uh, um, uh, suggest that what the the biggest, they they were both on the mark, but I think what they and other members have to do is sit with the Navy and make sure that the Navy's plans make sense and there are none of these uh, say-do gaps or lapses in logic. I think uh, Ms. Luria really nailed it. So at a time when the Navy is talking about not having enough tubes, we're going to decommission seven cruisers and 800 tubes. How does that make any sense? Oh, especially because some of those ships have actually had midlife updates, right? So they're actually pretty fresh leg cruisers. It's not like they're totally wrung out uh, and need to be retired. And so maybe members like that can help the Navy shape better messages. For example, right, telegraphing retirement of the littoral combat ship. I know that's important to, uh, to Mike Gallagher, right? Fincontieri Marinette Marine is right there and building those ships. And yet only the United States Navy would suggest retiring a class before it even builds them out or even really starts getting any value out of them as, as a class. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. Um, let me, uh, b- before I let you go, uh, give you an opportunity to let the audience know who's going to be on the show, right? Cavaships Ships normally is a weekly podcast, but you guys are going daily uh, in terms of the coverage, helping us take a deeper dive into this great show. Uh, who have been the guests? Who, who did you have on yesterday, Chris? Who are you going to have on today? And who should the audience expect to have on tomorrow?
3: Yeah. So uh, yesterday we had uh, Mark Vandroff. You mentioned Fink and Terry Marinette Marine. Mark talked about, um, you you know, the work that's being done up at at, Fink and Terry, but uh, in in Wisconsin, building uh, the frigate uh, or working to build the frigate, um, actually building uh, the remaining LCSs and then building the um, Saudi multi-mission surface combatant. Um, today, we have uh, Larry Ryder from Austell uh, talking about how Austell is expanding into ship maintenance, how they're continuing their uh, sort of traditional role of aluminum shipbuilding, um, you know, finishing up LCS and, and building the EPF, but also now about their um, launch into uh, steel uh, shipbuilding. And then, Bago, we finish up the, uh, the week. Tomorrow, talking to uh, Kim Ernson, uh from Raytheon and uh, on Friday, John Rambo from Lockheed Martin. They both talk about um, SPY-6 and SPY-7, respectively, um, how they integrate uh, the combat systems on existing and new ships, um, and then uh, the types of munitions that they're providing to the Navy both now and into the future. So um, I, I think it's a, great, uh, it's, it's a great lineup. It's a lineup that um, you know, we wanted to make sure that we shared um, that, you know, additional information beyond what you're hearing from Navy leaders that we we're also covering down on the industry side, so as you said, I'd encourage uh, I'd encourage folks to check those out. Uh,
1: absolutely, uh, and tomorrow we're going to have Vice Admiral uh, Bill Galinas, the commander of the Naval Sea Systems Command, certainly one of the most important uh, leaders in the Navy right now, as the as the Navy seeks both to recapitalize, but also uh, get more mileage on the out of the ships it has by uh, increasing shipyard and uh, and ship availabilities. Uh, and I should point out to the audience that we're going to have a roundtable, and you and Chris uh, are going to join us on Friday to sort of recap. Uh, the the show in a, in a more uh, fulsome manner. Chris, thanks very, very much, and look forward to having you back on the show shortly.
3: Thanks, Fago, and thanks to the audience for in, indulging my, uh, my my tortured uh, you know devil and angel logic of what I've heard over the last two days.
1: Uh, hey, man, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's a theme uh, that not just you, but so many other people have been echoing as well uh, over the course of the show, right? I mean, we've heard a lot of this before, Where's, where's the evidence that it's moving? And, and you, can, you can sense that Navy leaders uh, understand that they're getting that, uh, that feedback, but I think it's admirable urgency that we've heard from Admiral Kitchener, uh, Admiral Schleiss, uh, right, I mean, the CNO did hammer uh, some of those uh, messages home and we certainly heard that from Admiral Cottle, uh today. Uh, anyway, thanks very, very much, Chris, and uh, looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks again.
0: From cyberspace to outer space, Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit northropgrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.